It is my joy to be with you. As Jason referenced, uh, Edgewood has a special place in my heart. Uh, I grew up here at this church. I was saved, baptized at this church, went to Awana in this church. I see some of you who were my Sunday school teachers growing up in church. And uh, of course, I interned and was ordained right here at this church. So it is truly my honor and privilege to give back just a little bit to uh, what this church has given so much to me. Before we dive into the word this morning, I do want to introduce my wife, Molly, down here in the front row. And I met Molly and got to know her real well at Moody as she graduated from Moody Bible Institute as well. And she's from the Quad Cities. And I would always take the train up to Chicago. She would drive her car. So uh, me being the cheapskate I was would mooch rides home with her, uh, which gave me crucial time in the car to convince her I was worth keeping around. (laughs) But... uh, Molly actually is in full-time ministry as well. She's a pro-life, pro-family lobbyist. Now, you might be scratching your head a little bit. Amen. Amen. A few of you know what a lobbyist is, but some of you might be scratching your heads and, and thinking, well, wait a second. I thought during campaign season, the only bipartisan agreement is that the lobbyists are the bad guys, right? According to some politicians. Well, a lobbyist is simply someone who talks to legislators about issues that they care about and are passionate about. And Molly works for organizations like Illinois Right to Life and Illinois Pro Family Alliance. So she advocates for preborn children as well as the biblical sexual ethic in Springfield, which as you know, is not the easiest of jobs nowadays. So I'm very proud of what Molly does. And you've probably heard the saying, there are two things you shouldn't talk with people about if you want to make a lot of friends. And that is politics and religion. And seeing how the Lord blessed our marriage with a pastor who's into a lot of religion and a pro-life lobbyist who's into a lot of politics, it's our cross to bear. But if you ever hang out with us... You're going to get a healthy dose of those popular topics. With that, though, I want to maximize our time together in the Word. So let me go ahead and pray over our time in Scripture. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for this time we have together. God, I pray that you soften our hearts and open our minds to receive what you have to say through your revelation, that is Scripture. God, I pray that you remind us that we have come here for one purpose, and that is to focus on you, to worship you, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. God, I pray, Lord, that your spirit meet us where we are at. And if there's any unspoken prayer requests, God, any stresses on our hearts this morning, maybe it's uh, we need to pray for those who need healing from COVID. Maybe it's stresses and anxieties at work. Maybe it's uh, just loneliness and depression. Whatever it is, God, I pray that your spirit meet us where we are at and minister to us where we need it. Lord, so just bless our time together and may we be nourished by your word. May we be encouraged by your word and may we be equal equipped by your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Insufficiency is defined as being inadequate or simply not being enough. Have you ever been insufficient before? (laughs) Well, I know myself being no stranger to this concept. Uh, For example, my Chicago Bears seem insufficient to find a decent quarterback. (laughs) My Chicago Cubs, on the other hand, seem insufficient to win more than one World Series per century. And let's be honest, trading half the team midseason doesn't help our cause. 
My debit card is currently insufficient to buy a Corvette, but I realized that would be the case when I went to Bible school. In fact, reflecting on my time at Moody, there was another time that my knowledge was found insufficient, and that was in Greek class. And I recall one time my uh, professor calling on me, and he said, Mr. Rumley, translate this Greek word for me. And I had no idea what I was doing, so I threw out a guess and a silent prayer, and I learned by the sheer grace of God, miracles still happen today, and I somehow got it right. (laughs) But my professor saw right through that perceived miracle, and he called on me again and said, Mr. Rumley. I said, yes, sir. He said, do you plan on guessing when it comes to who you'll marry one day? And I was like scratching my head, and I'm like, I'm not sure where he's going with this, but no, right? I think I'll put a little more thought into that. And he said, well, if you're not going to guess on who you'll marry one day, then let's not be guessing when it comes to translating and exegeting the word of God in its original languages. And I was like, wow, that was one of the more uh, unique and, dare I say, awkward rebukes by the Lord for my own insufficiency. But needless to say, I took Greek class a little bit more seriously moving forward. Out of all the times we as imperfect people can be found insufficient, there is surely one place where we dare not be found insufficient. And that is when we are face to face with a perfect, almighty, righteous God on Judgment Day. And it is my goal and my task this morning to explore the scriptures to help us reflect on how we, who are insufficient, can be found fully sufficient on that ever quickly approaching day of judgment. So join with me here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be reading through verses 18 through 31. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And as you turn there, let me remind you that this is the word of God. The word of God is infallible. It never fails to accomplish what it's intended to communicate. It is inerrant, which means it has no errors in the original manuscript. And is God speaking to us this morning, and I trust that God has something to say to you this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's begin here in verse 18, and we're going to travel through all uh, the verses here until we get to the end of the chapter, so bear with me as we read the word of God. Verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord." 
let's begin by diving into the first few verses here where the Apostle Paul begins by reminding the church that the gospel is offensive to the unbelieving world, yet the very power and wisdom of God to those who are believing. Paul begins by using the Jews and the Gentiles or the Greeks as examples. He says to the Jews, this gospel of Christ crucified is a stumbling block. Now, why is this the case? Well, I could imagine that if we were unbelieving Jews back in this day, we would look at the Old Testament and say, surely our Messiah is supposed to be a political savior. (laughs) He's not supposed to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's supposed to ride in on a stallion. He's not supposed to be a suffering servant. He's supposed to be a political revolutionary. He's supposed to not be crucified by the Roman Empire. He's supposed to overthrow the Roman Empire and restore the kingdom of Israel to the days like it was under David. Truly, the gospel of Christ crucified is a stumbling block if we have that misunderstanding of the Messiah. To the unbelieving Gentiles or the Greeks, they would probably look at their pantheon of gods and say, what type of God would be born of a lowly Jewish girl? What type of God would be a mere carpenter? What type of God would minister for three years and manage to get himself killed like a common criminal? And guess what? His disciples even lost the body. What type of God is... Thanks for someone catching that. I appreciate that. What type of God would that be? Truly, it seems foolish to worship a God like Jesus. Have you noticed that the Jesus of Scripture is a stumbling block and foolishness to the unbelieving world today? For example, Jesus as creator is foolishness to those who want to look scholarly to the academic world. Jesus as judge is a stumbling block to those who want to live however they want. Jesus as savior is simply unacceptable to those who believe they already righteous and are righteous enough and don't need saving. Jesus as God is offensive to those who want to be their own God. Although it may be tempting, we shouldn't shy away from the reality that the gospel of Christ and him crucified is a stumbling block to unbelievers, but is the very power and wisdom of God to us who are being saved. We don't want to abandon this biblical truth because when we do, we can fall into some nasty temptations. And one of those temptations is what Paul Washer calls playing a dress up with the church. Uh, Paul Washer was at a pastor's conference one day. And if you ever know who Paul Washer is he has a knack for convicting even the godliest of pastors. And at this conference, he told a story. He said, imagine with me a couple who gets married. And after a few years, the spouses start to stop trying to impress each other in their marriage. They stop trying to look attractive to one another. They stop trying to spend time with their spouses. But on the weekends when the spouse isn't around, that is when they dress up and go out into the world. They would rather impress those who aren't their spouse rather than look attractive to the one who they're married to. He said this would not be a healthy marriage. They aren't even acting like genuinely married uh, spouses. But how often does the American church play dress up with the bride of Christ? Where instead of focusing on our groom who is Jesus and really striving to get his attention, really listening to how he wants us to look how he wants us to sound? How can we be most attractive to Jesus? Do we then maybe turn our attention to those who are not our spouse? And we look at maybe the newest poll to see what does the unbelieving world find most attractive and how can we dress up to look like that? Or maybe we adjust our teaching and there are some things in scripture that we know that the unbelieving world would not find appetizing to their spiritual palate. So we say, for example, Jesus is love, But then we de-emphasize the fact that Jesus spoke truth in love. Or maybe we say, Jesus hung out with sinners. 
but we forget to mention that he told them all to go and sin no more. How often do we play dress up with the church where we look to impress the unbelieving world who is not our spiritual spouse, and then we ignore maybe our groom, who is Jesus Christ. Now, thankfully, here at Edgewood, we have a great pastoral staff, and I think they do a great job of not playing dress up with the church, but it's a good reminder for us, as many in the American church, I think I've fallen victim to this temptation, but the Apostle Paul begins here by reminding us that the gospel of Christ and him crucified, if you're a believer this morning, you know it is the very power and wisdom of God. There is nothing we can do without Christ and him crucified, but to those who reject it, it will always be a stumbling block. To those who reject it, it will always seem like foolishness, and we shouldn't shy away from the reality that the gospel is the power of God for those who believe, but is offensive to those who reject it. Let's move forward here to verses 26 through 29, where the Apostle Paul is going to continue describing uh, how Christ is fully sufficient for us. Verse 26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul now turns to demonstrate that no one should boast in themselves, but rather we should boast in God and God alone. And I find this text extremely encouraging that God would choose the lowly. He would choose uh, not, not necessarily the smartest of people or the richest of people or the most popular people, because guess what? I'm not the smartest. (laughs) I'm not the most popular. I'm not the richest, but yet God chooses people like this for a specific purpose. God is always in the business of reminding humanity of our smallness and insufficiency to maximize and magnify his bigness and his sufficiency. For example, why would God choose a stuttering orphan shepherd named Moses, who, by the way, had a criminal record, to go toe-to-toe with the most powerful man in the world at that time, or Pharaoh? Surely, relying on human wisdom, we would side with Pharaoh, not Moses, in that brawl. Or why would God choose the small shepherd boy David, who had a very nice little rock collection, to take on the pagan giant Goliath? Well, relying on human power, if I was a betting man, I would bet on the Philistine giant in that pay-per-view duel. God did this to demonstrate his power and wisdom as being far superior to the best this insufficient world has to offer. He chooses small, stuttering, weak vessels because when he does that, it becomes crystal clear that they are not beating Goliath on their own power or they are not outsmarting the pharaohs by their own wit, but really it is God and God alone who is superior to whatever the sinful world has to offer. God also magnified himself by even choosing the Jewish people in the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 7 makes this crystal clear. Verse 6 says this, For you, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other people, for you are actually the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a 
faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. We see here that in the Old Testament, God did not choose the people of Israel because they were the richest, because they were the smartest, because they were the most numerous. Rather, they were the smallest of all peoples, and God chose them because he loved them. Furthermore, we see here that God's people in the Old Testament were intended to be righteous. They were intended to obey the commandments. They were intended to be sanctified as they were set apart and holy as God's treasure possession. We also see that they were people who were redeemed from the slavery of Egypt under the slave driver, Pharaoh. But if we know our Old Testament or we were paying attention in Sunday school, we know that depending on their own power and wisdom, Israel utterly failed to maintain their status as righteous before God. They failed to maintain their status as sanctified or holy before God. And they failed in maintaining their own freedom or redemption before God. We know, for example, that just as God brought them out of, Israel, out of uh, Egypt, what did they do? They built a golden calf. How silly. But they failed there. We see furthermore that God brought them to the uh, beginning of the promised land, but they were too scared to go in. So God let them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Once even God brought them into the promised land, we see in the book of Judges that they kept on failing by falling into idolatry. So over and over and over, God had to rescue them as they failed. And he had to rescue them again because they failed and so on and so forth. Depending on their own power and wisdom, Israel was insufficient to maintain their righteousness, their sanctification, and their redemption before God. If they were insufficient and we are insufficient, we need something different. Rather, we need someone different. If we are insufficient to maintain that status before God, we need someone to be our righteousness, someone to be our sanctification, someone to be our redemption, and that and that alone would be sufficient. Let's continue here to verse 30, and as we encounter each of these characteristics that describe Christ, we will reflect on these by summarizing what our position is in Christ and what our response should be to these realities. So let's read here verse 30 where it says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let's start here by reflecting on the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ is a major theme throughout all the pages of scripture. If you have trusted in Christ and Christ alone this morning, then these words apply to you. Listen to this. It says this in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or how about this? All who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Or here in Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And here's one of the most encouraging passages in scripture that I love. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is a verse you memorized this week. This should be it. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Union with Christ is a foundational reality in scripture. It is revolutionary. It is transformative. When we have trusted in Christ and Christ alone, our relationship with God is so personal. It says that we have become one with Christ. It says that we have been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. We have been baptized into Christ. We have been clothed with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. You have been raised with Christ. All of this language 
indicates the foundational reality that we are united with Christ when we trust in him. If we forget of this intimate spiritual union, then we will fundamentally misunderstand the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we don't understand this union, then suddenly the gospel can seem like a stumbling block or foolishness. But when we understand this union, it becomes the very power and wisdom of God. So often when it comes to being united with Christ, we know quite well the benefits we receive from Christ. And we will focus on those here in a minute, but sometimes we often forget, what did Christ receive from us? Let me tell you a story here to illustrate this. I remember reading an article when a young lady was feeling a little bit of stress. (laughs) She had some anxiety because she was scared to talk to her boyfriend about something. Uh, Upon reading the article a little further, turns out she had just a little bit of debt that she was keeping a secret. (laughs) By a little bit, I mean a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. You can understand her anxiety because she thought, surely once my boyfriend learns the debt I have, that would become his. If he marries me, surely he will choose not to unite himself to me. Well, thankfully, by the end of the article, we find that everything turned out good because her boyfriend loved her so much that he was willing to take on that debt probably see where I'm going with this, in marriage, and he was willing to help pay it in full. So too, what did Jesus see in you that would make him want to unite himself to you? What did Jesus see in me? I didn't have any good things to offer. I had a lot of sinful baggage. I had a lot of debt. Why would Jesus want to unite himself to someone like me? Well, throughout the pages of scripture, we see that God loved us so much that even while we were yet sinners, he died for us and that he knew full well that when he would unite himself to his people, that he would have to take on that debt, take on that sinful baggage and pay for it in full on the cross. So it's helpful as we move forward here to remind ourselves when we unite to Christ, we rejoice in all the benefits we receive from him. And don't worry, we'll focus on those here in a minute. But I want you just to take a moment to remind yourself that Christ didn't really gain anything in the way we think of it from uniting himself to us except the debt and baggage of sin. But he loved you so much, he wanted to glorify himself by taking that sin to the cross and bringing you into an eternal relationship with himself. So what is our position knowing the reality that we are in Christ? Well, Christ is in us and we are in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. When he returns, you'll appear. If you've been baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. What is our response to this reality? Well, we want to live this new identity, no longer defining ourselves by the world or our own feelings, but rather seeing ourselves through the lens of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are united to Christ. Let's move forward here to the next section of verse 30, which says, Jesus is our wisdom. Wisdom means intelligence, insight. I would also argue it means knowledge of what is right. Christ is all of these and even more. When we are in Christ by faith, we are connected to God. We possess the knowledge of God through Christ. We would be utterly ignorant of God if we were separated from Christ, for he is our wisdom from God. Hebrews 1 captures this imagery quite well where it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We see here that God speaks to us through Christ. In the former days, he spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken with the most clarity and the most finality through his son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the exact imprint of the father's nature. He is the radiance of his own glory. So when we possess Jesus or the son, we possess the father. When we see the son, we see the father. When we have the knowledge of Christ, we have the knowledge of the glorious nature of the triune God and the exact imprint of the father himself. So Jesus is what connects us to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. No one has wisdom of God unless they possess by faith the one who is the wisdom of God. To add to this, Colossians 2 also says something that I love. It describes that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you think our culture could use a little more wisdom and knowledge today? Do you think... You could use a little more wisdom knowledge today. I know I certainly could. And the Apostle Paul says, these are treasures that are found somewhere. And they are hidden in Christ. I love this imagery. First off, describing wisdom and knowledge as treasures, something to be valued, something to be cherished, something to be sought after. But then he even adds that they are hidden in Christ. Now, initially, I'm kind of thinking, well, why doesn't Christ just make it easy for us to find? Why is it hidden in Christ? Well, I love this language because when something is hidden, it has to be sought after, which means you have to search out Christ. You have to explore Christ. You have to spend time with Christ. You have to talk with Christ. You have to listen to Christ. You have to walk with Christ. You have to spend the time and energy to invest in your relationship with Christ. And then and only then will you discover the treasure that is wisdom and knowledge. And the more you get to know Christ, the more you'll have the mind of Christ as you equip yourself with the biblical worldview and can interpret all of creation through the reality of what scripture describes. And then you'll possess the wisdom and knowledge that so much of this world is missing. And isn't that true? When we strip away the biblical worldview or when we search for wisdom and knowledge outside of Christ, wow, we can really misunderstand things about this world. Let me give you a very brief and quick example. Who are you? as a human being. If we search for that answer in Christ, will we know from scripture that it says you were intelligently designed by a good God. You were knit together in your mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. And guess what? You reflect the image of God himself. Wow, you are valuable if we look for that answer in Christ. But let's strip away the biblical worldview for a moment. Let's try to discover that answer if we don't search for it in Christ. Well, what's the best we can do? Well, if we take away the Christian worldview, then what's the best secular counterpart answer we have? Well, you, my friend, were not intelligently designed because there's no designer. You were not fearfully and wonderfully made because you truly weren't made. You weren't knit together in your mother's womb. You don't reflect the image of God because he isn't there. Rather, you, my friend, are cosmic coincidence. 
Over millions of years of random chaotic explosions of energy, nothing became something, became alive, then guess what? It became you. You are not intelligently designed. You are not valuable. Rather, you are a highly developed animal. Lucky you. That's a scary worldview when we think about it, and I'm thankful most of our secular counterparts don't consistently live out that reality because they actually bear the image of God whether they admit it or not. But you see what I'm saying here, that when we search for wisdom and knowledge outside of Christ, we can come to some dangerously silly conclusions. But when we search for the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and we start with Christ and we search Christ and we equip ourselves with the biblical worldview, then and only then will we properly understand and interpret all of reality. So Jesus is our wisdom. What is our position? Well, we have access to God. We have knowledge of God, and we have a relationship with God all by having Christ through faith. What is our response? Well, our response is that we want to interpret all of reality through the filter of Christ. We want to equip ourselves with the biblical worldview so that we can understand reality and help others understand it as well. Let's move forward to the next section here, verse 30, where it says, Jesus is our righteousness. Righteousness means justice. To be righteous is to be obedient, to not break the law, but to actually fulfill the law. Leviticus is crystal clear. If you want to live, you have to obey the law. Well, unfortunately, Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul reminds us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James adds to our troubles by saying, if you've broken one part of the law, guess what? You've broken it all. And Isaiah jumps on board at the end and says, even your righteousness is like dirty rags compared to the perfection of God. What a discouraging message. But thankfully, for verse 30, we see that there is a solution. Romans 8, Romans 10, and Acts 13 summarizes quite well how Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before I move forward, just reflect on that real quick. Let me read that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes I read scripture and it's just helpful to read it again to remind us of those realities. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned you. No, no, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I hope you caught what Paul is saying here. (laughs) He's saying that God sent the son in the flesh to accomplish what the law could never do. The law only wags its finger at you. Every time you fall short, it wags its finger. It condemns you, but God sent Christ in the flesh to condemn sin. And how did he do that? By fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf so that when we're united to Christ, it is now fulfilled in us. If Leviticus says perfect obedience is what's expected to be, find, to be found sufficient on the day of judgment, we find our perfect obedience in Christ and Christ alone. Romans chapter 10 adds this, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God. 
God's righteousness. For Christ is the end or the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about that the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. There are people who try to go on their own righteousness and they will be found insufficient on the day of judgment because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. But once again, the father sent the son to be our righteousness for Christ fulfilled the law for all those who believe. To properly understand this, We need to remind ourselves of what it means to be united to Christ. These verses don't make much sense unless we understand the spiritual union we have with Christ. Acts 13 adds this, And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justify means to be declared righteous. Why could you not be justified by the law of Moses? Because the law isn't declaring you obedient, it's declaring you disobedient. That's what the law does. But why could Jesus, or through Jesus, everyone who believes be declared obedient? Because the obedient one is in us. So we are declared righteous or justified in Christ because Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law on our behalf. Therefore, those who obey the law will live, and we will live because we are in Christ, or united with the one who obeyed the law perfectly. This exchange of righteousness is best described in the classic verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which hopefully you have memorized, and it says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A few things I want to point out about this verse is that it says with clarity, Jesus never knew sin. Jesus never committed one sin in his life. He was perfectly obedient to the law with every jot and tittle. He never sinned, but the father treated him as if he did. Why? Because Jesus united himself to sinners like us. Therefore, we, in some sense, gave Christ our sin to be nailed to the cross But catch the other side where it says, for in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as Jesus never sinned, but he received the penalty of our sin, so too we were never perfectly obedient, but we received the reward of what Jesus earned when he was perfectly obedient. So Jesus became sin on our behalf and we become righteousness on his behalf. This can be illustrated through a story about an NFL player named Adrian Clem. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of Adrian Clem before. Probably not, and for good reason. Uh, Adrian Clem was only in the NFL for five seasons, and he only started about 10 games. Yet, he also managed to get three Super Bowl rings during those five seasons. Now, how was he able to pull that off as seemingly a mediocre, at best, football player? Well, Adrian Clem was drafted by a team called the New England Patriots in the year 2000. Now, if you know your NFL, there's also someone else who was drafted in the year 2000 by the New England Patriots. I'll give you a hint. He plays for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers now. (laughs) That gentleman is Tom Brady. Now, suddenly it starts to make more sense. Adrian Clem, although he rode the bench for most of his time on the Patriots, he was on the same team as Tom Brady. And Tom Brady, this is overly simplistic explanation, but he earned those Super Bowl rings on the field. And since Adrian Clem, he didn't contribute much on the field, but he was united to Tom Brady by being on the same team. So he received the same reward. You guys can see where I'm going with this one as well. (laughs) 
when we trust in Christ, we are on team Jesus. And although our righteousness is like we're playing the bench because it's dirty rags, we don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our justification. We've been disobedient, but Jesus earned it for us. And so just as he earned his righteousness, we receive that reward because we are united to Jesus by faith. So Jesus is our righteousness. What is our position? Well, we are considered perfectly obedient in the eyes of God due to Jesus being our righteousness and it being credited or imputed to us by faith. What is our response to this newfound reality? Well, we want to start truly being obedient and fulfilling the law and to live righteously like the truly righteous one. Let's move forward here to Jesus being our sanctification. Sanctification means to be holy, to be set apart for special use. In Christ, we are special. We are what the Bible calls the elect, God's chosen people, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, saints. In fact, the church in Greek means the called out ones. Marriage is a great illustration of what it means to be sanctified. Uh, If you think about it for a moment, uh, in marriage, uh, there's about 7 billion people on this earth to choose from. But we have the audacity to look at one and say, I choose you. (laughs) I should probably point out my wife when I do that next time. I choose you. (laughs) And out of all these people, we say, you are going to have a special relationship. You are now my person. You are going to be treated extraordinary. You are my treasured possession, that you are not going to be treated like everyone else, that I have this unique relationship that is wholly set apart from how I treat other people. So too, the church is called the bride of Christ. (laughs) In Christ, the elect of God are called out from all other peoples to become a unique treasured possession of God. We are no longer sinners, but now we're called saints. We are no longer enemies of God, but children of God. We are a special people that are set apart for holy use as we experience this unique relationship that not everyone has. We are holy. We are sanctified. We are set apart because... We are in Christ. Christ is the reason we are holy and set apart because he truly is our sanctification. So what is our position that Jesus is our sanctification? Well, we are holy. We are unique. We are treasured. We are special. We are called out. Wow, that's a morale booster for all of us this morning if you've trusted in Christ. What should our response be to this reality? Well, we must live out this sanctification by becoming more like Christ. Be holy as I am holy is not a suggestion in scripture. It is a command. We are not to act like the ordinary unbelieving world when we are a special, unique people that are children of God. Jesus is our sanctification. Finally, it says Jesus is our redemption. To redeem is to effect freedom or to release by the payment of a ransom. Redemption is deliverance from the oppression of slavery. God did this in the Old Testament when he redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And we know that Jesus sent Moses down, the stuttering, simple shepherd boy, to go down and look Pharaoh in the eye and to declare, let my people go. Then we see that. Jesus wasn't in the business of conversation for that. And 10 plagues later, we see that he forcefully brought his people out of slavery in Egypt under the slave driver, Pharaoh. So too is Jesus letting his people go from sinful slavery, from serving the slave driver, Satan. Jesus is in the business of redeeming his church and his chosen people. 
In fact, I love what's described in Luke chapter 9 in an interesting uh, text called the Transfiguration. Uh, If you're familiar with this text, Jesus goes up on a mount and we see that Elijah and Moses appear to talk to Jesus about something. Now, you might be wondering, how does this text, uh, how does it apply to the idea of Jesus being our redemption? Well, listen very closely. It says that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about this. They were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, you might still be scratching your head and wondering, where in the world is Pastor Justin going with this? Well, let me ask you, do you happen to know what the Greek word for departure is? (laughs) It's exodus. Think about that for a moment. You have Moses talking to Jesus about the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. I find this story amazing. First, Jesus sent Moses down to Egypt to declare, let my people go and to rescue them from bondage. So the father is sending the son, the true Moses, to come to this earth and declare to the church, let my people go. And he frees us from the sin of being enslaved to to Satan and to our own sin. He saves us from being spiritual blind and spiritually dead. And we see that we have true redemption in Christ when we follow the true Moses as he accomplishes this spiritual exodus. There are a few other verses that reflect on the idea of Jesus being our redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19 says this, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that, listen closely, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is our redemption. He's purchased us with his own blood. He has come into this world to rescue us from the slavery of sin, to rescue us from serving the Pharaoh, that is Satan. And he is leading us to the promised land that will be the new heavens and the new earth. So what is our position that Jesus is our redemption? We are now free from slavery to sin and Satan. We, see, we are God's promised people following the true Moses out of our spiritual Egypt. What is our response? Well, we must live like free people to not return to the sin that once enslaved us and to look forward to the promised land that will be the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is our redemption. Paul closes this chapter in verse 30 by reminding us that if anyone dares to boast, we must boast in the Lord and the Lord alone. Why does he end like this? Because when we understand the gospel of Christ and him crucified, we really have no basis for boasting. When we talk about the wisdom we possess, we can't look at our own self, but rather that wisdom comes outside of us in Christ. When we talk about our righteousness, we can't look within ourselves. We have to look outside of ourselves to Christ, who is our righteousness. When we look for our sanctification and holiness, we can't find that within ourselves. We have to look outside of ourselves to Christ, who is our sanctification. When we look at our own redemption, slaves can't free themselves. We have to look outside of ourselves to Christ, who is our relationship. Throughout all of this, the Apostle Paul is challenging us and reminding us that we, on our own power and our own wisdom, are wholly insufficient to be perfected on the day of judgment. But in Christ, in Christ alone, he is sufficient to accomplish exactly that. 
this past summer, I have a friend uh, who is a business manager and accountant at a certain business. Uh, He was a little bit stressed out this past summer, and you can imagine what would stress out an accountant for a business. Three letters, IRS, (laughs) right? (laughs) They came knocking on his door, and it was going to be an audit, and he was stressing out. He had confidence in his work, but he was thinking, I have to be perfect because the IRS is going to look at everything that our business has done. They're going to uncover everything that I've ever done. If I didn't keep a receipt correctly, they're going to find it. If I didn't do my math correctly, they're going to find it. If I'm imperfect in any way, shape, or form, they are going to bring it to light and they're going to punish my business for it. So he was thinking he had to be utterly perfect. And if not, the IRS was coming for him. How much more so on judgment day when an almighty, all-knowing, all-righteous God audits your life. What will he find in your life? No small thought that you thought was left in your head will go covered. (laughs) No small word that you thought no one heard will go unheard because God will find everything. What will he find when he's looking for wisdom in your life? he'll most likely find foolishness. (laughs) When he's looking for perfect righteousness, what will he find? He'll find your dirty rags of sin that you have the audacity to call righteousness. When he's looking for sanctification or holiness, what will he find? He will find unholiness. When he's looking for freedom and redemption, he'll find that I'm still enslaved to my sin and loving every single moment of it. That is if we don't have Christ. When God audits our life, he'll find that not only are we imperfect, we are insufficient and deserving of condemnation. But I want you to take heart this morning, weary soul. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is medicine to the soul this morning. One more time. For by a single offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. How does Jesus perfect us by offering himself to the Father? Well, when we are united to Christ by faith, no longer is God auditing our lives. God is auditing the life of Christ. So when he sees Christ in you, and he's looking for wisdom, he's going to find it. Why? Because Christ is our wisdom. When God audits Christ in me, and he's looking for perfect obedience to the law, he's going to find it because Jesus is my righteousness. When God audits Christ in me, and he's looking for sanctification and holiness, he's going to find perfect holiness because Jesus is my sanctification. When God looks at Christ for the redemption that he desires, well, since Christ is in me, he will find that I've been freed from, from my slavery to sin because Jesus is my redemption. Jesus is fully sufficient and God will find everything he requires because he's no longer auditing my life away from Christ. He's auditing Christ who is united to me. And just as in some sense, he audited Christ when I was united to him and he sent Christ to the cross to pay for that sin. Now he's auditing Christ in me and he'll find everything he needs In other words, he'll find a perfected person on judgment day. I cannot express myself better than this ancient third century Christian did in a work titled The Epistle to Diognetus. Listen to his words from the third century. Reflecting on the gospel, he said this, He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for those who are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? 
By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, should be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefit surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. When I first read this, I thought, surely this had to be written by a more modern author like Martin Luther or maybe Pastor Brian or someone. But think about it. This was by a third century Christian who understood what the gospel was. He understood why Christ crucified was foolishness to the world, but was the very wisdom to us. He understood why a suffering servant was a stumbling block to some, but the very power of God to those who believe. Once again, as the author of Hebrews says, for by one offering, Jesus has forever perfected those who are his. The Greek word for perfected means to complete, to bring to the finish. And when I meditate on someone who is capable of perfecting a wretched, insufficient sinner like me, you know what word comes to mind to describe a person who can pull out that miracle? Someone who is fully sufficient. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for this time as we reflect on your word, on your gospel, and we just magnify Jesus and his beauty. God, I pray, Lord, that through your words, you remind our hearts of this reality that if we've ever doubted our salvation, we should never doubt Christ's sufficiency to save sinners like us. God, I pray that if we've never trusted in you, that you would prick our hearts to respond by faith and reach out and possess and trust and lean on the Son of God for our salvation. God, I pray that you use these words to encourage our souls, to equip our souls, and to nourish our souls as we seek to accomplish your kingdom work this week. But ultimately, God, we pray that you are magnified and you are glorified for every single second of this worship service. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I had a blast with you guys. I hope you did too. God bless you and have a great week. My pleasure. Thanks, brother. Appreciate that. It was encouraging to look at your face and see you nodding the whole time. Kept me going. I agree totally. (laughs) God bless you. I appreciate that. Hey, how are you? Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, it's a, I have a blast here, man. It's Good. it's fun. So, mm-hmm. I bet your dad, mom, are just yeah. Well, they all made it to the second round here, so we'll see if they stay for a third service. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but it's always good seeing you guys, and you guys are doing well? Yeah. Good to hear, good to hear. Hey, hey, you can thank Molly for that. She coordinated this for me, and got to give her credit. Got to have a woman. You got that right. God bless you guys. Good to see you. Hey, doing well. Good to see you. Remind me, oh, my goodness, did we go to Moline together? Yes. How are you doing? Wow, I think it was the beard that threw... Well, I guess I have a beard now. Okay, okay. What are you up to nowadays, man? Hey, man, not much, man. Just working, okay. working. Where, where at? Uh-oh, uh, Mid-America Basement. Good for you. Yeah, Good for you. Tech there, uh, about diving into a little real estate. Okay. You know, so 
Good for you, brother. You know, there's a lot of nations right now. Sure. You know. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. How long have you been coming to Edgewood for? Oh, shoot. This will be my sixth week. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. a great church to plug into, oh, man. It is. It is. I mean, I've came Thank here you, God bless you. before, during high school. Okay. You know, sure. Uh, you know, I'm getting back to it. I love it. I love it, man. I see your face. I was like, oh, that's... I recognize that guy. Well, hey, it was so encouraging for you to swing by, man. God bless you, and uh, thanks for stopping by. It's good to